0: Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Janet Ruchon. Janet is the author of three works, Rejoice in My Gladness, The Life of Tahareh, the second is A Love Which Does Not Wait, and the third is The Nightingale, Baha'u'llah. We talk about each of these works in the interview. I started the interview by asking Janet where she grew up and what was it like growing up there.
1: Well, I grew up in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and I was born in 1950. Child of the 50s is different from being a child of the now. So what was it like growing up? Well, I will name a very positive thing, which was that my house was across the street from a beautiful parkway called Lehigh Parkway. And it was very big and had a stream running through it, willow trees by the stream, and very soft green grass, and these like bridges, Japanese bridges going over the stream. I mean, it was just amazing. And then there was a rose garden, flower garden, ponds with stepping stones going over them. It was like growing up near fairyland. <laughs> but I used to think it was Never Neverland because <laughs> I actually dreamed that Peter Pan came and we flew over it, and that was Never Neverland. So that was a great, a great blessing of my childhood, that I was, and I was always out playing in that.
0: And what were your interests growing up?
1: Well, I was a major bookworm. I was always in the library. My mother was always late to pick me up, so I was always standing in the door of the library with all my books <laughs> piled up. And I read lots and lots of novels, fiction. I also read a lot of biographies, which I also liked. And I was also extremely interested in theater. And I took, there was a really great theater for children in Allentown called Civic Little Theater. You know, there was a group of adults that did plays there. It was an old movie theater, and it at, on its stage, you, could, you also did plays, and it was just the most, I thought it was the most wonderful place in the world. And we used to go in there up into these dusty old rooms upstairs above the theater and have classes, you know, for the children, and it was all very improvisational, very creative, very, very imaginative, and I just thrived on that. I loved it. I did that all the time. And I kept studying theater also as a young woman, but finally I let it go for actually having it as a career because I had uh, a child and I thought it would, the theater, it was either the theater or the child. The theater would absorb me completely and the child would not have any of my time. So I left it, I let it be.
0: And what was spiritual life like growing up?
1: Spiritually, I was Jewish. My family was Jewish. And they took me to synagogue, to temple every Friday evening. And they really wanted me to have a strong Jewish identity because, you know, 1950 was right after the end of World War II. And all of the horrors about what had happened in the Holocaust had come out. And uh, many of our uh, friends and you know, family had lost uh, everyone. The villages that my grandparents came from were entirely gone. So there was a huge awareness of that, but it was not really a happy spiritual experience because it was a huge awareness of desolation and loss and despair and wondering why. And even though my parents took me to temple, they were very agnostic. They questioned a lot, and that's also a Jewish tradition. You really question a lot. You're allowed to have doubts and fight with God and everything. You know, I I was actually told by a rabbi at one point that there was no God. I I told him that I prayed. I was a little girl, and I used to pray every night, and uh, no one else in my family did. And I told the rabbi, and he said, well, there's no God listening when you pray.
2: Oh, my gosh.
1: Oh, my gosh, right. (laughs) So it was my spiritual experience growing up was devastatingly bad, Baha'u'llah says that the worst oppression a soul can suffer is to be looking for truth and looking for answers, you know, to, to spiritual questions and, and not be able to find them. I don't have the exact quote, but that I think that is an amazing thing that he said because, there, you know, we suffer so many different forms of oppression in this world. Yeah, he said to be wandering in search of the truth and not be able to find it, to think that it doesn't exist, and that was my condition
0: all through growing up and high school and
1: you know when i was really small i had an awareness of some kind of huge force of love that just seemed to have its arms around our house and was holding it but that got turned into something to be afraid of because i didn't know what it was and it was a force and it was mysterious and became actually afraid of that and of course then i didn't really feel it that much anymore yeah, mostly I was cut off from from what I really felt in my heart. I was cut off from it. So I was very depressed in my adolescence. I was very, very disturbed.
0: And how long did that carry on for?
1: You know, that was a few years. When I say I was disturbed, I mean I was extremely disturbed. And uh, there was someone who gave me a copy of a book, and I don't know what on earth inspired him to give this to me. Perhaps we had been having discussion about spiritual matters or something. I don't remember. But he brought me a book by Gerard Manley Hopkins, a poet. And Gerard Manley Hopkins was a 19th century English poet who was writing amazing stuff. He was a a priest. And and then he took a vow of silence. It was just awful because he was a poet and he took this vow of silence and he, and he, he told himself he couldn't even write poetry. And and then he would write despite that because it would just come out. And his poems are so gorgeous and amazing and his his use of language is his experiments with tempo and rhythm and words. And I was just, you know, 16 or 17. I didn't really know a lot of what made his poetry that great. But I loved it. And I thought, this man is a totally brilliant. He's a genius. And I had thought that if someone believed in God, they were stupid. That was what I was made to feel, mm. that only stupid people believed in God, because how could you believe in God? So when I read Joy Manley Hopkins, I said, this this man is is not stupid, and he's writing poems about Christ our Lord and all these things, and you know, I was this Jewish person, but I had I, I loved Christ. I loved all the prophets. I thought I wanted to find one, you know. <laughs> so I was so in love with him, and that kind of freed me up because I said, oh, you know, it isn't necessarily stupid to have faith and believe and be looking for something to believe in. And it was not long after that, actually, that I encountered um, the Baha'i faith.
0: And how old were you when that happened? 18. And and how did and how did that happen?
1: Well, I had developed a theory. Um <laughs> I'd been reading Gerard Manley Hopkins and I had been reading all through my teenage years when I was so unhappy, I also read um every kind of different religious scripture I could find. I read, you know, the Bhagavad Gita and the Buddhist um writings and I tried to read the Zendavesta, Zarastra, and all kinds of things. Because I wanted to really hear the actual voice of the of the prophet, you know, what a Zoroaster or a Christ or a Moses or a Muhammad actually said, and to me they were all one. To me they were, I didn't see much difference between them. I just thought they were they were all wonderful, and I wanted to really know one of them or all of them somehow, and so I read these books, but they were, you know, of course, very old, and they were translated into English by various people and various kinds of English, and uh, none of them, I really couldn't get into any of them, you know, as a 15, 16-year-old, even a 14-year-old, you know, I was, I was young, and I just couldn't make head or tail of a lot of it. So finally, I read the uh, the New Testament, um, and I read about Christ, and I had always known about Christ, but people who were Jewish, people in my my family and other people, they accept Christ as, you know, like a great rabbi, but they don't, you know, accept him as the messenger of God. You know, when I would bring that up, nobody wanted to talk about that. But because of my love for George Manley Hopkins, he was always writing about that, and so I kind of fastened on Christ as the figure of the prophet that, you know, I could identify most easily since I'd grown up in the Western world and, you know, in America <laughs> where they celebrated Christmas and Easter. I knew all the stories about his life and had sung Christmas carols in school and all that, you know. So so that was my, I fastened on that. and I, and I my And finally, I would just say these prayers that I wanted to know if Christ had returned recently, and if he had returned, I wanted to know, and I wanted to follow him and if he if he was going to return, I wanted to know, so I could meet him and follow him so i was that was when I was about eighteen, I came to that, and I had this theory that all the really that all the messengers were one in spirit, all the messengers of God, and that there should be one for this day and age because we needed him. Where was God's voice for us now? you know, so I went to college. And um, I was expounding on my theory to a girl that I met, and she said, Oh, you should meet this guy. He's crazy. You know, he says the same things you do. He's completely insane. And it was a Baha'i, a Baha'i student that was there. And so that was how I encountered the Baha'i faith. And then, of course, you know, it, it wasn't easy because when I did encounter it and did think... That this might be what i had been looking for. It was a long, long road. <laughs> Try to understand what it really was, and mm-hmm. actually be able to pray. You know, as I had wanted to pray all my life, but by that time, I really couldn't pray. And you know, there were just many, many problems that I had. So, but that was how um, I came into it.
0: That's very interesting. That yeah. so early in your childhood, you were so drawn to the spiritual life, and how it your situation just created a dysfunction, a spiritual dysfunction.
1: Yeah, it was it was a very strong dysfunction, and it was always there.
0: But you got to the other side of it and felt like you could become a Baha'i? Is that how it worked?
1: I became a Baha'i quickly. You know, they said, oh, well, you're looking for the return of Christ. Baha'u'llah is the return of Christ. I mean, I was in Vermont. I was Putney, Vermont, at this college called Wyndham College, and it became briefly famous among the Baha'is because there was a small group there of us freaks, as we were called in 1968, you know, these hippies that became interested in Baha'i, and we all became Baha'i on the same night. And our friend George, the Baha'i who was a, managed a farm there and was giving the meeting that we went to, he had one card, and somebody said, well, I want to be, become a Baha'i. I've been reading about it, and I want to be a Baha'i. So they had this one card, and they were passing it around, and they had all come ready to sign it. I had not come ready to become a Baha'i. I really didn't know much about it. I had, you know, been told some things. I, I had lots of doubts. I had lots of questions. I, You know, I had all kinds of mixed feelings. Somebody gave the card to me to pass on to someone else, so I I said, well, I'm not going to sign this now because I need to know more about it. So I passed it to someone else. And then I began to cry. And then I cried and, cried and cried and cried and cried and cried. And I was saying inside myself, what if it's not true? And this is a false prophet. What if you get involved with this and it isn't true? And and then finally I just said to myself, well, you know, I'll only find out by doing it. The only way I'm going to know is by getting into it. I'm trying to be it, and I don't know if it's true or false, so I prayed to God to protect me, and I became of a Baha'i. I signed the card.
0: And so, did God protect you?
1: Yeah. I feel like my whole life has been an amazing blessing, but it's funny because I always used to wonder why on earth these things happened to me. When I, Like, when I was a kid, here I was so hungry for spiritual things. Why was I so far from them? You know, why was I in this in the situation I was in? You know, because we all have tests and difficulties in life, and you wonder, what do I have to go through this for? But at this point, you know, when I'm I'm getting older, and I really feel like everything just was perfect. Everything was perfect. It didn't matter. It doesn't matter how much I suffered. It doesn't matter. And when I was writing about Tahre, I just finally realized, I said, you know, I couldn't write any of this without having lived my life. It was perfect. It was exactly what I needed. So I have no complaints. But um, I did. I did have a lot of complaints (laughs) (laughs) for a long time, you know, on and off and in and out.
0: So when did you get the writer's bug?
1: I was writing since I was a kid, too. I I wanted to be an actress, but I also I read so much, and I loved reading so much. I also wanted to write things. I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a writer or an actress. Acting, of course, was stronger as a child. You know, it's, it's much easier to just run around and be in a play than to sit there and try to write a story. That was like, you know, your hand gets tired and you are <laughs> and you don't know what to say, and et cetera, et cetera. It's, I, I, I had a much harder time trying to write things. But I did write poetry, and then uh, I did managed to write a few stories I, I thought I would end up writing fiction because that was all I read basically except for some biographies stories of people's lives you know I like that but I didn't really write those seriously until let's see when my kids were little and I needed a job and I started working for a local newspaper in Rhinebeck New York and I started you know writing feature stories for them interviewing people and things And that was when I started to put together articles. It wasn't fiction. I had to have the facts, and I had to talk to people and get their stories, and I got into journalism. And I did that off and on for many years, and then I was down in Latin America uh, for 13 years, and I ended up being a journalist there. You know, so, so, and then I got back here, so I've, I've been a journalist all in all for a long time. I don't do it anymore, but Um, I did it for many, many years. Reporting and, you know, hearing people's stories and getting a feeling for when the story begins and has its middle and ends (laughs) in the real life became kind of second nature. And uh, that's all part of writing the biographies that I write now.
0: Right. What was the first biography that you wrote?
1: When I was in Chile... There was a wonderful Bahai who went to Chile. Her name was Marcia Stewart and she was from California. She went down there in the 19 I think early 1940s, I think before World War 2 started. I don't remember now. I didn't I did write her life though. As she really established the Bahai community in Chile. And uh, she was what the Bahais call a pioneer, which is someone who goes to a place where there aren't any Bahais and she talks to people and finds interested people and actually establishes a you know, a Baha'i group. So Marcia Stewart did that and I wanted to find out all about her so I had a really great time because the Chilean Baha'i Center in, in Santiago had an archive. But the archive was all these old papers and they said the people there said, Oh, there must be a lot of letters and things from Marcia there. But we don't know where and you know, no one had ever filed anything, no one had got through anything. Somebody at one point had put the had wrapped these papers up in brown paper little parcels, which is good because that way they weren't covered with uh pigeon dung and other things. Because they had just been left then in these in these places where you know, where there was just dust and you know, mice and things like that. But somehow they hadn't been eaten nibbled up or, or by animals or anything. So I spent a lot of time underneath this stairway in the uh, National Baha'i Center there in Santiago, unearthing things out of these, untying these paper parcels and getting all the papers out of them. And I did indeed find lots of letters from Marcia and to her, and I put together her life from these papers that I found. And then I wrote um, something called An Enchantment of the Heart about her, which is actually, it's online. It's that a... was back in like 1988 or something. Yeah, that was not That was a small, you know, like a booklet. I had written for the, oh, I forgot about this. I had written for the uh, Baha'i Public Information Office when I was in my 20s for about a year. I was up in Wilmette. And at the time we had uh, American Baha'i Newspaper and we had Baha'i News Magazine. The Behind News magazine used to publish some historical articles and things about the olden days and people who had established the Baha'i faith in this country. And I wanted to write uh, a historical article. And I found this telegram. I didn't find the telegram itself, but in my readings I came across it. When Marion Jack was a wonderful Baha'i who lived and taught in Bulgaria during World War II and then later under the communist regime. She she went through incredible amounts of privations and uh, wouldn't leave because she loved the people and the country. And she died there. And when she died, she was Canadian, and when she died, the guardian of the Baha'i faith, Shoghi Effendi, the head of the world community of the Baha'is, sent a telegram to Oliver Heis saying that Mary and Jack had gone to join her coworkers, you know her angelic coworkers. Uh and he named these other great people. There was Dorothy Baker, and May Maxwell, Lula Getzinger. They were all women, except for one man named Hyde Dunn. And so I thought, well, that would make a great article. I'll just write a little profile of each of these people. I ended up calling it A Love Which Does Not Wait because it that's what um, was said about one of the people by a lady who wrote about her. said she went forward with A Love Which Does Not Wait and braves all obstacles. And, you know, just nothing, nothing stopped her. And that was Martha Root. So I wrote this article and... Um, it was published. I was quite proud of it. People were surprised that I wrote it. They thought they said, "Did you write that?" Because I was—I hadn't gone to college. I had never finished college. I—I I didn't strike them as a person who—who who would write something like that. But I did. <laughs> <laughs> so I was rather proud of myself. And then I kind of, you know, went on and did a lot of other things. I got married, and and I was writing for the newspaper, et cetera, et cetera. And then I heard that this article had been translated into Spanish and published somewhere in South America as a little booklet. And, of course, I I wished I could see it. Uh, Nobody had told me. Nobody I, I didn't know anyone had done that. When I went to Peru some years later to live there, I finally did get my hands on one of these articles, on one of these, yeah, A Love Which Does Not Waste, Un Amor Que No Espera, in Spanish. So that that was great, and I had it, and every now and then someone would mention it to me down there. Towards the end of the time that I was in Chile, I went to an international youth conference. I dropped in. It was no longer youth, but I dropped in, and there was this little sign in the hallway that said, Un amor que no espera, a love which does not wait, and there was an arrow pointing down the hall, and I said, what's that? There was a man there from Brazil who was a very wonderful, actually himself, a, a tremendous scholar and brilliant writer, and a, a Persian man, and he was giving a workshop for the youth on based on this article about these different people, these nine people that I had written. And so I thought maybe I should expand it into a book because by this time I had written quite a bit, all kinds of, of articles and I was an environmental reporter. I mean, I wrote about lots of different things. I thought maybe I will um, expand it into a book. I, you know, just expand every section on all the different people. So I did that. Of course, that's easier said than done. It took a long time and many years. And by the time I finished, I was back here. And uh, it finally got published in 1998. So that book is called A Love Which Does Not Wait. Baha'is well, seem to be familiar with that book. Yeah. They call it the book about the women, because mm-hmm. there were eight women, and only this one poor man hiding in there among them.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Janet, do you have a <laughs> do you have a favorite passage you'd like to share from that book?
1: Yeah. This is the introduction to the chapter about Martha Root. She was a journalist. She... Um, Went all over the world. Well, it, it tells about her here and what I'm going to read. But I, I chose this uh, especially because the quote, uh, "A love which does not wait," is is in here. You know, which became the title of the book. So I oh, thought, well, that's that's good. So on the morning of April 11th, 1912, several hundred Baha'is stood on a Manhattan pier watching the S.S. Cedric with Abdu'l-Bahá aboard, glide towards them from its overnight anchorage outside the harbor. They'd been waiting since dawn, and now when they saw him at the ship's rail, they waved hats and handkerchiefs high. Among them was Martha Root, the person who would, as the century rolled on, Come closest, the Guardian said, to the examples set by Abdu'l-Bahá himself in the course of his journeys throughout the West. Martha, a successful journalist, was in her forties, tiny, with large, candid, blue-green eyes, a singularly sympathetic smile, and a very determined jaw. Her devotion to Abdu'l-Bahá impelled her to travel around the world four times in such an selfless spirit that she became, as Doris McKay wrote, the embodiment of a love which does not passively wait, but which goes forth with the wholehearted, reckless spending of personality, of time, of strength. For Martha, the joy of following in Abdu'l-Bahá's way was so great that she called her journeys, despite their physical rigor, Spiritual Skylarking. She was generally reticent about personal matters, so while myriad papers of hers survived, no description of her private interview with Abdu'l-Bahá has come to light. It occurred in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where she lived and worked. She had arranged for Abdu'l-Bahá to address some 400 people at the Hotel Shenley on May 7th. A friend recalled Martha saying that when she met Abdu'l-Bahá, he anointed her with attar roses and embraced her, drawing her head gently to rest on his shoulder. He also presented her with white roses. Later, she often wore a white rose on her dress. She took time from newspaper work to attend Abdul talks in New York City, Washington, D.C., and Chicago. She was particularly moved by his Unity Feast, a picnic of Persian food that he hosted for over 250 people of varied classes and races, at Teaneck, New Jersey. The same event where Lua Getzinger went off into the poison ivy in her effort to avoid going to California. Since 1912, Bahá'ís have commemorated the picnic annually, with a gathering called Abdul Baha's Souvenir. And Martha, wherever she was in the world in later years, made a point of doing something special on that day. She was also profoundly touched on a July night in New York City when Abdu'l-Bahá spoke of the martyrdoms of the poet Varga and his 12-year-old son, the two whose deaths had been motivating factors in Lua's mission to the Shah in Paris. Over 20 years later in Iran, Martha researched and wrote about the two martyrs in detail, titling the story White Roses of Persia. She said that when Abdu'l-Bahá finished telling the tale, he went upstairs and the silent guests could hear him weeping. She felt the two heroic lives couldn't fail to urge every soul who heard about them to action. They certainly had that effect on her as she went forth through revolutions, riots, epidemics, and more, in places of which the folks back in her hometown had never dreamed.
0: For those who have not heard of Abdu'l-Bahá, yes. maybe you could explain to them who Abdu'l-Bahá is.
1: Well, Abdu'l-Bahá was the son of Baha'u'llah, and Baha'u'llah was the founder of the Baha'i faith. And um, when he died, he left to the Baha'i faith in the care of his son, and he told the Baha'is that his son was the center of the covenant of the Baha'i faith, the center of the oneness. that because of, of Abdul-Baha, the Baha'is would not split up into lots of groups and sects, and the Baha'is must remain united because Baha'u'llah's message was, to the world was based on the oneness of humanity and unity. So everyone was to turn to Abdul-Baha, whose name means the servant of Baha. And Baha'u'llah means the glory of God, and so Abdul-Baha The title is like the Servant of of Glory. And Abdu'l-Bahá was in this country in 1912 after he had spent his life as an exile and a prisoner with his father, really. He ended up being a prisoner under the Ottoman Empire and when the sultan was overthrown in a palace coup, finally, Abdu'l-Bahá was not a prisoner anymore. And... He made some journeys westward. He was in Europe, and he was in the United States. And that whole story is amazing, and if anyone is interested in that, there is information about that online and in lots of books. And in my book, every person in A Love Which Does Not Wait, it turns out that every one of them that I wrote about had met him personally and been transformed by him, by the contact with him. I didn't realize that when I started writing the book, there was one person who I had no idea that she had ever met him. I hoped so, because by the time I got to her, she was the only one then who wouldn't have met him personally. I had found that all the rest of them had. I was reading her diaries. I had this huge mound of papers of her diaries, and I was reading them. And, and sure enough, I came across this one entry that said, this is the anniversary of the day I met the beloved Abdul Baha. She had met him in London before she actually became a Baha'i. And I was so thrilled because it gave the books an incredible unity and power. You know, that every one of them were really truly apostles of of the son of Baha'u'llah. They they lived so close to, you know, to the founding of their faith and, and the roots of it.
0: Jana, what was the next book that you wrote?
1: Well, there was a manuscript that I had written in Chile in Spanish, actually, called El Risionero de Baha'u'llah, because I had been I had given a workshop to some youth about the life of Baha'u'llah, and I had to give it all in Spanish. And geez, I was I was I was reading through the Spanish Dawnbreakers, which if you know that, it's a huge book. It's hard enough in English for for a native English speaker, but So they were trying to read in Spanish so I could tell them these stories in Spanish. But anyway, I became inspired and I thought, why don't I write a little book about Baha'u'llah with all these stories about him very poetically linked together. So I did, and that was in Spanish. And I must say the Spanish wasn't very good because when I write in Spanish, it's not that great. After A Love, Which Does Not Way was published, a few years later, I came upon the manuscript of of The Nightingale. And I decided to put it into English. And it it ended up being published in a bilingual edition. It's a very short book, and there's a text in English, and then the second half of the book is the same text in Spanish. So these are our little stories of... The founder of the Baha'i Faith,
0: and do you have an excerpt from that book that you'd like to share?
1: Um, let, me, let me find something. I had picked something, but I think read something a little easier. This is very sweet. Martha Root is in this too. The lady I just read about, um, she comes up in this also. This is called "Can One Fix One's Gaze Upon the Sun?" His disciples found it hard to meet Baha'u'llah's gaze. One said, know with certainty that if anyone, friend or enemy, claims to have looked directly into his eyes, he is a liar. I tested this again and again, but all my attempts to look at him were in vain. Can one fix one's gaze upon the sun? Another decided he at least wished to observe what color taj the halal wore. That was his, his headdress. But every time he was in his presence, the resolution slipped his mind. Finally, one day, he managed to glimpse Baha'u'llah screened by gathered Baha'is. All that was visible was the Taj, and it was green. Baha'u'llah lived in Adrianople from 1863 to 1868. He no longer went out frequently among the people, but received pilgrims in his home. Much of his time was taken up with writing and dictating his teachings. His revelation flowed so abundantly that no one was capable of transcribing the thousands of verses he chanted every hour. Much of it was lost. From Adrianople, he sent one of his most important tablets, a letter to the rulers of the East and West, called the Tablet to the Kings. It was received by the Sultan of Turkey, the Shah of Iran, their ministers, the French and Persian ambassadors to the Ottoman Empire, European monarchs, including Napoleon III, and Islamic leaders in Constantinople. In it, Bahá'u'lláh commanded the kings to lay down their weapons, care for the poor, make a treaty for world peace, and embrace his cause or endure the punishment of God. The monarchs ignored his summons. Their empires no longer exist. Bahá'u'lláh predicted their downfalls, the wars resulting from their greed, and the final unity of humanity, despite them, in peace. Authorities were infuriated by the kingly nature of his words and his majestic demeanor. His majesty was unflinching and incontrovertible because it came from his inner illumination and had nothing pretentious about it. Most people showed him unquestioning devotion. His effect on the townspeople was undeniable. Years after his death and about a half a century after he left Adrianople, two Baha'i travelers, Martha Root of the United States and Marion Jack of Canada, went there seeking traces of him. They looked for the houses where he had lived and people who remembered him. They met an old man seated in a doorway who as a boy had delivered yogurt to Baha'u'llah's household. He told them that Baha'u'llah always gave him pilaf, rice with meat, raisins and spices to take home He said, Baha'u'llah kept a special kitchen for the poor and had a big garden with a grape arbor from which he loved to give away grapes. And then the old man stood and tried to show the two women how Baha'u'llah had walked with dignity and power.
0: I guess there's a third book you wrote.
1: Yes, that's the most recent one. I'm really quite surprised at myself for writing this book. I'm I'm glad I wrote it. Um, it's called Rejoice in My Gladness, The Life of Tahre. And Tahre was uh, one of the first, earliest people in the world to actually see Baha'u'llah and believe in him. I, I don't want to go into a whole long religious history here, but she was a very, very um, unusually educated and brilliant woman in Iran in 1848 she appeared before a company of men without her veil to impress upon them the fact that this was a new day a new age and in it men and women are equal and all races are equal and this is a Baha'i revelation uh, so she exposed her face which was a huge taboo she was martyred shortly after that in 1852. Now, I had known about Tahereh. Her name means the Pure One. That's a title, meaning the Pure One. I had known about her ever since I came into the faith when I was 18. You know, they told me about her. The first thing, actually, I ever tried seriously to write was an article about Tahereh when I was about 20, I think, because Ms. Magazine had come out. Ms. Magazine was the first, you know, woman's, uh, feminist, a feminist magazine. And and um, I thought, well, they, you know, they would love to have a story about Tare. Well, they didn't. I mean, they never accepted it, but I wrote it. But I, in the meantime, I had, I knew someone who knew someone at the National Information Office, and they sent it up there. And that person, that was how I got the job in the National Inter information office of the Baha'is. They liked the article so much, they offered me a job. That goes back a long, long way, but I never thought I would write a whole book about her. Um, but all the stories about Tahereh that, that we had, that I had heard and that I'd read, Martha Root, my, my lovely lady that I was just reading about, she, she actually went to Iran to learn more about Tahereh, and she actually met some people who had been in Tahereh's family and talked to them and she wrote a book about her uh, early on but these books were pretty sketchy and were wonderful and you you know you, I wasn't in, super interested in her but I wondered because people would say oh she you know she was the only woman in Iran with any education she was you know the only person I thought and finally I thought that can't be because she had to have come out of something you know, there's something in the culture, I don't I don't care how much women were oppressed, there had to be something. There had to be she had to have ancestresses, you know. Mm-hmm. She had to have some kind of heritage that went with the education that she got. So sure enough I did I, I when I decided to write about her, um, I did discover that there was a tradition of educating women in her family, for example. You know, all kinds of amazing stuff that really made her more into a whole and real person that I could write about. So that was some of my impetus for deciding to write about her and write a book about her. The other was just that it seemed to be something that got a hold of me and I couldn't get rid of it. It took 10 years or so to get this done. A lot of research. I actually learned some Farsi I've translated some of her poems. Yeah, it was a huge adventure. Huge mm-hmm. adventure to do this.
0: So do you have an excerpt to share us? Share with us?
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, what I'll read is just this first passage here from the preface because it kind of introduces her and her story in a very basic way. It's called Her Defining Moment. Early summer... 1848, the outskirts of the village of Badasht, northern Iran. An orchard grows, leafy and green, against a backdrop of deep purple mountains and turquoise sky. Near the fruit trees, a mountain stream flows through fallow gardens, where three tents or pavilions stand. A young woman steps out from one of the tents and makes her way to the open flap of the next, from which rises a roar of men's voices, arguing. The young woman enters and stands before the men. Silence, but only for a moment. Then wails and screams of consternation and rage. One man slashes his own throat and staggers from the tent outside into the empty field, bleeding profusely. Another lifts his sword against the woman as if to kill her. Thoroughly serene, she faces them. She faces them. She stands before them, unveiled. Her face is bared. She is breaking the greatest taboo of her Islamic nation. It is unthinkable that a young woman of her high status, she is a poet and scholar revealed by many as a saint, endowed with wealth, impeccable lineage, and familial connections should reveal to some eighty men who are not even related to her, so much as an eye, a hair, a whisper of the curve of her cheek. Yet here she stands, her beautiful face adorned as if for her wedding, her veil torn away, warped and weft of tradition, rent by her own hand. And then by her own voice, as she proclaims with ecstatic clarity, this day is the day of festivity and universal rejoicing, the day on which the fetters of the past are burst asunder, let all who have shared in this great achievement arise and embrace each other. Has she gone mad, or is this the sanest, most cogent moment of her life? And if it is, what does it mean to the life of the world? Her world, which is the world of Europe and the West, too, remote as it may seem, During this same summer of 1848, the first Women's Rights Convention will gather in Seneca Falls, New York, to demand, among other things, women's right to speak from religious pulpits. And the entire year of 1848 is one of revolution from Paris to Sicily, called by some idealists the springtime of the peoples. A fateful synchronicity... As Iran's great medieval poet Rumi wrote, neither Eastern nor Western human.
0: What do you think you're going to write about next?
1: I'm in the middle of this book. It's called Louis Gregory and His Shining Circle. It's a companion volume to a love which does not wait. And I must say, I was not planning to write any more biographies After I finished the book about and I was very tired. And I really just wanted to write poetry and do collages and things like that. And I went on pilgrimage to Haifa, to the Baha'i World Center. When I was there, uh, the first thing anyone said to me was, Oh, you wrote A Love Which Doesn't Wait. Oh, I love that book. And they thanked me. So then I thought maybe I should write a companion volume to it. And then I said, no, I wasn't even done with the Tahereh book at the time. And I said, no, 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 don't even think about it. But then, you know, I was finishing up the book on Tahereh, I was back home. I got a phone call from Palabra Press, which is the publisher that published A Love Which Does Not Wait. And they said they were bringing it out in paperbacks. I was very glad because it's a very inexpensive edition. So I said, great. They said, do you want to add anything to it? And I said, no. And you want to revise it? I said, no, no, it's all right. And then they said, do you want to write a companion volume to it? (laughs) I couldn't believe my ears. Really, that was very surrealistic, you know. I said, well, yeah, okay, Um, I'll, I'll think about it. So anyway, I've ended up, I did think about it a lot. I've gone through many different ideas and versions, and so now I'm halfway through it. It's about people who pioneered racial amity, interracial amity, in the early part of this century, you know, at a time when in this country there was, you know, terrible race riots and segregation, Jim Crow law, and all that, and the Baha'is had to be having integrated meetings and You know, according to abdul Baha's directions, they had to be completely integrated and one one family. It centers on Louis Gregory, who was, I think, one of the greatest people ever (laughs) that I ever read about. It's called Louis Gregory and His Shining Circle because uh, it's about him and other people that he worked with. He used to end his letters to people Love to you and all your shining circle. So that's where I got the title.
0: But I look forward to seeing it come out.
1: (laughs) In A Love Which Does Not Wait, everybody, except for one man, everyone was female and they were all white, which, you know, nobody has ever criticized that. I have no problem with it because they were all so incredibly wonderful. But I did want to write about some different people and some men. (laughs) So that's what uh, this book has more diverse crew.
0: Well, Janet, thank you so much for sharing about your life and your work.
1: Yeah, <laughs> thank you.
0: I hope you enjoyed that interview with Janet Rue author of three works, Rejoice in My Gladness, The Life of Tahereh, the second, A Love Which Does Not Wait, and the third, The Nightingale, Baha'u'llah. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope to join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Hampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.